Nick Cave is a messenger first, artist second, educator third. And that is the order in which it goes in. And I am an artist with a mission for change, equity, and uh, inclusion. I mean, at the end of the day, studio practice is important, but it's really bringing the world together and making way for a better existence. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. And welcome to the first episode of season six. We have so many exciting episodes planned, and I can't wait to share all of it with you. My guest today is my favorite kind of artist. His creativity is boundless. He's equally daring and innovative, and his work carries deep meaning worthy of discussion and introspection. T Magazine summed him up pretty well when they called him the most joyful and critical artist in America, Nick Cave. The first time I heard about Nick Cave was in 2013. As part of the centennial celebration of New York's Grand Central Station, he staged a performance with a company of dancers from the famed Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, dressed in his fantastical soundsuits. These head-to-toe costumes create colorful, otherworldly characters that make sound as they move. It was an early social media sensation, and in my mind, ignited the current renaissance in performance art. Nick Cave is also the subject of a retrospective called For Other More, which began at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago and is now up at New York's Guggenheim until April 10th. There, his sound suits are celebrated like towering sculptures, alongside early works, video, and other mixed media pieces that use found objects to create commentary on American culture and social justice. Speaking of social justice, one of his recent works is a massive installation where he plastered giant black type onto the facade of a school in upstate New York that reads, Truth Be Told. More on that later. Nick was born in Missouri and later attended the Kansas City Art Institute and then his MFA from the renowned art and design school, Cranbrook. As an artist, I've always considered to be equally an incredible designer. He does teach graduate level fashion courses, after all, at the Art Institute of Chicago. His latest triumph is a line of textiles for Knoll, which pull inspiration from his portfolio, especially his sound suits. I caught up with Nick Cave from his studio in Chicago, which he runs with his longtime personal partner and also design director, Bob Faust. I wanted to learn about how he became the artist he is today, his club life in New York during the days of disco, and how one of his shows in 2018, If a Tree Falls at his longtime gallery, Jack Shaneman, seemed to foretell the Black Lives Matter movement. I think, you know, when I think about the early years, it's the sort of liberation of being able to be creative and, and parents not getting in the way of that. With my mother and father, I think that they paid attention to what uh, settled us. You know, may it be sports or may it be art, whatever. And they sort of understood that this is what's focusing this kid right now. And so he's okay. Let's, you know, he's going to be fine. Let's now focus on (laughs) the other ones that maybe are not so sort of settled in. You know, it's kids tell you what they're interested in if we listen. 
So you had six brothers. So you, yeah. you uh, uh, would you have any sisters or is it just no, all boys? No, all boys. Oh, Lord. Okay, so if you had seven boys, I would assume that your parents would do anything to kind of make sure everyone was happy. That and, you know, I think, you know, structure and, you know, unconditional love. You know, my mother comes from a family of 16, so she was first of 16, so she already knew how to sort of navigate and manage a group of young people. That and and feeling secure and feeling protected and liberated. I mean, you know, I was just dressing crazy as a kid. My mother was all for it. You know, just these sort of things that, you know, you know, she sort of believed, well, as long as none of that gets in the way of your school schoolwork. What does it matter? And were you the artistic one of your brothers? No, I've got like three other brothers that are artistic, you know, Jack and then Don, you know, one comes from a design sort of field, corporate design world. And my brother Don works in the building industry. And so, you know, it was... It was there, you know, and surrounded by aunts and grandparents that were makers. And I grew up around creative energy. And when you went there, like, did you have any, um, you know, like such an early age, like, did you have any sort of art heroes or people that you looked up to creatively where you were like, wow, that, you know, that's why I want to go to school is because I want to be like somebody. You know, I think as a young person, you know, I think my first museum experience, experience was when I was 17, and I went to the St. Louis Art Museum, and I saw this Kiefer painting, and I started to cry. I don't even know why, but I was very emotional. But I didn't really know that there was a such of, I didn't know there was such of a thing as art, an art school. I thought you sort of maybe did it in college at a university. And then, you know, Miss Mickred, who was my high school art teacher, she was the one that says, I think you should go into art. And I was like, okay. And so she was the one that helps, you know, direct that sort of shift because she saw something there. And was that energy sort of supportive of you going to the Kansas City Art Institute? Well, you know, when I told my mother that this is what I wanted to do, she was like, okay, with a bit of hesitation, like, how in the hell is this going to uh, pan out at the end? What, what, Where does this lead this young man toward and you know i just was but it was really again my what i desired i think that was the most important thing for her is that you know but this is what he wants to to pursue so when you studied at the kansas city art institute uh, what kind of courses did you take well, Kansas City, you know, Kansas City Institute, liberal arts, uh, and then, you know, your first year's foundation. So you basically are sort of really learning about so many sort of methods and ways of working. So I was really sort of just sort of absorbing all of the possibilities from sculpture to performance to painting and drawing 
textiles. And so that was really sort of the the sort of underlining and also dance at the University of Kansas, Kansas City, in terms of thinking about uh, electives and things of that sort. So I was really sort of just sort of getting my feet wet, exploring and sort of looking at all these various disciplines and found that I was more comfortable in the textile and fiber program there. And so that's where I landed. And that's where I was making things, objects, and then was thinking about the body and and how does that find its way into this sort of practice. And so that's where performance came into play and, and sort of thinking about uh, happenings and pulling together, you know, classmates and making things, you know, creating things on the streets and just sort of, you know, working in this sort of non-collaborative way, thinking about in order for a spectacle to happen, I need bodies and and what does that mean in terms of, you know, dress and, you know, so I, you know, was really sort of really, really just exploring that sort of vast kind of space from, you know, objects to the body to performance to public space. And so that's when it all started to come together or me thinking of, not that I was really committed to anything because I was still learning so much. You know, I remember being a senior and I did my first mini collection in Swanson's, this department store on the plaza. We had open studio and they came through the studio and wanted this collection. Well, I'm like, what does that mean? And, you know, I did it. But it was not that I was like, oh, this is what I want to do. I'm going to be a fashion designer. No, I wasn't even thinking about it from that perspective, as opposed to, oh, you know, that was a great experience. And I was able to, you know, meet and step up to the deadlines. And, and so I was able to complete that project. And so it was really, you know, project-based experiences that, you know, help shape who I am today. Before we return to Nick, a word from our sponsor, Ann Sachs. In the world of inspired interiors, there are a few brands that have become synonymous with timeless American style. As an interiors editor for nearly 20 years, one name comes up again and again, Ann Sachs. The brand opened its Portland, Oregon factory 30 years ago, realizing a vision to produce the finest handcrafted tile, showcasing modern, timeless design. Today, Ann Sachs collaborates with leading tastemakers to help interior designers and aficionados from around the country to create truly personalized spaces. From Martin Lawrence Ballard to Kelly Wurstler, Ann Sachs translates the talents of these designers into tile that can shape and elevate spaces. Their latest collaboration is with visual artist Lisa Hunt and available in showrooms in March. Known for her kinetic, expressive, and completely unique aesthetics, often using metallics and hints of abstracted typographic inspiration, Hunt's line of extensive stoneware tile is called Asha. Handmade in Portland, Oregon, the collection comes in five designs and six color options and is a true extension of this vibrant American visionary. For more information about the Asha collection by Lisa Hunt for Ann Sachs or about any of their incredible handmade tiles, visit 
www.ansax.com. And the New York Times wrote a piece uh, on you a couple of years ago about your experience as a graduate student at Cranbrook, which, of course, is one of our great sort of, you know, design-driven, I should guess I could say, uh, uh, institutions, uh, which is in Michigan, for those who <laughs> aren't from the U.S., in the late 80s. And you rem- you recalled uh, to, the ri- to the journalist that you had this feeling for the first time of being, you know, the only black male in the program. And I'm curious if you, how, what that was like at that time and how that may have impacted the way you saw yourself or the way you thought about your work. Well, I think, you know, I think art school, you know, eighties, you know, seventies, you know, if you had three to five people of color, that was huge. And so, you know, it was not that it was not, you know, so at undergrad, there was probably, you know, maybe six people of color there. And so you knew, you know, it, it is what it is. And so I was able to connect and, and have connection at undergrad. But at Cranbrook, when I went, was the only sort of minority. And I was like, what? I was literally quite shocked. And it was really the first time that I had to look at myself as a Black man because, you know, there was no one that looked like me around me. And so, you know, I began this journey of, a, you know, trying to uh, address that. You know, I remember the first series of critiques and I was doing work about that feeling and no response was provided in the critique. No one would say anything about this work. And so my professor was just furious, like, Nick has put this work out here, and you all are not responding. And I refused to talk because I thought, you know, I'm working through it, through this sort of application. And, you know, the least you can do is respond to to what it is that I'm sort of doing. And so that was sort of interesting. And, you know, I sort of, you know, I was very much aware, very awakened in that moment. Not that that was hindering uh, my sort of uh, development there. And then I realized that I was really, this is Bloomfield Hills, which is sort of a suburb of Detroit. And Detroit, thank God for Detroit, Detroit balanced it all out for me. You know, I was on campus during the week. On the weekends, I was in Detroit. (laughs) I just needed to be with my people. And so it all, you know, it's interesting how we figure out how it all is going to work out or what we need in order to create balance. And so that was extraordinary to be very much connected to Detroit and at the same time being able to sort of get back to Cranbrook and sort of push on through. There's no bio about you that doesn't mention sort of summer programs at Alvin Ailey and and, and your time there. Uh, can you expand a little bit upon that and, and what that was like? Cause, uh, and I'm also fascinated because it was New York in the, I would say, probably early 80s, early mid 
eighties, if that's if I'm getting yeah. the time early, right. Early eighties, late seventies. Well, you know, I mean, you know, I started dance at the University of Kansas, Kansas City, where Evan Ailey has um, uh, uh, had a satellite program there, and so I was looking at dance. Not that I was interested in going that sort of direction, but how does it? How will it serve my practice? So I was looking at it the same way as I would be looking at painting or sculpture as another discipline that I found that was very much part of what was needed in in my work. But, you know, New York at the time, you know, I was like, you know, it was the disco era. It was like transitioning into house. And so I was completely in that world okay where did you go out where did you go where did you go out for house music oh my god to limelight to uh oh god the underground you know i'm not a drinker i'm not a smoker i don't do any drugs or anything never did it was about having this space to release to let go of all and ambitions to work through the shit. Uh, and I would literally jump into these clubs, you know, one o'clock in the morning. I would be, and I would go right to the dance floor and literally dance to like six in the morning, walk out the door, go to work, whatever was happening. That was like the most healing uh time for me. It was a way in which I was able to figure out the sense of balance and clarity. That brings us to the sound suit. I think the first one was in 92, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And and if you could could take us to that, that sort of origin story of how that happened, um, I would love to hear it from from your your own mouth. Well, you know, I think you know. With you know, after grad school, I was my closing sort of meeting with my professor. You know, he goes and by the way, you have a teaching position at the uh, School of the Art Institute in Chicago, and I was like, okay. And so that's how I got to Chicago. And that year, Rodney King happened. And, you know, that was the first video. I mean, it's not that we as people of color were not aware of these um, concerning incidents with police and people of color. But this is the first time that we all saw it recorded. You know, I'm moving through the world thinking I was completely wide awake. But that incident awakened my consciousness in a way that shifted everything for me. And so, you know, I'm sitting in the park really trying to process what we had just saw and thinking about what does this mean for me as a a black male of color? 
this, you know, thinking about being profiled and just really trying to work through it. And then as I was reading about Rodney King and how they were sort of describing him larger than life, working out with prison weight, scary. And I'm like, what does that? And I'm imagining what that looked like. And so I'm thinking, wow, you know, I don't, I never have personally felt being sort of discarded, dismissed, viewed less than, but I can certainly understand it. And I happened to be in the park and I just, I don't know, I started collecting the twigs in the park. And then I, you know, went back home and got my sort of cart and came back and just, that's what I did for like three days. I don't even know why, but I think I saw that object as something that was discarded, that I could kick out of the way and sort of dismiss. But I went home and started to build what I thought was a sculpture, but then realized I could put it on. And then the moment that I put it on and started to move, it made sound. And so then that, because what I was creating was trying to create anything to protect my innocence, to hide my identity, to shield my pain. And so when I moved in it, it made sound and that led me to think about ideas of protest in order to be heard, you got to speak louder. And then I didn't know what I had made because it wasn't that I went home and did a sketch. I just made this object. And for probably the first six years, I had made this collection of sound suits that I basically just kept in the closet because I really, when I saw the Twix suit, I knew that something was about to shift in my life when I saw it. I could feel it, and uh, but I mentally was not quite caught up with it, with that body of work. And how do you know that? How What was that moment? You know, when you, I mean, I'm sure you got feedback from somebody where, you know, you're like, oh, I'm onto something. This is, this is something I need to go further in. I didn't even share with anyone. I kept it to myself for about six years. And until I understood what I was making and like why I was making it. Uh, And then the moment that I uh, shared it with, a gallery that was my first show like everything happened all in like that moment it kind of came out fully formed in the in the moment of well from the gallery's point of view because it was all had been in hiding for so long yeah and that was like that year i was on the cover of a magazine just things that i'm like what is happening right now And so, how did you cope with that? I just, I just, it's, you know, I just sort of like, you know, it was just coming. I just had to process and do the best that I could do. The one thing about being an artist is that, and a young artist, you're not left out of school with a manual of how it's done or how to do it. It will just happen. In, in in the moment or it may not happen. We don't know. 
preparation meets opportunity, I just truly believe. And so, you know, so I was showing the work. Uh, you know, I was like a gypsy, you know, artist gypsy. You know, I would show the, the work here, pack up, keep it moving, show over here, not committed to any gallery, not so sure what I wanted still, but very committed to making, like all in or nothing. And so that went on for about, uh, you know, I would say, Six years until Jack Shaman came across the work. How did that happen? If it was sort of kept private, how did that? Well, a, f- a friend of mine was going to New York and said, you know, I think there's this gallery that I think would like your work, you know, put together a portfolio and I will take it there. Because that's what it was, you know, it was a portfolio back then. It wasn't. <laughs> he didn't check out your Instagram as right. telling me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and so Jack called me a week later and said, you know, we're, you know, interested in your work. And I was going to New York the following week. And I, you know, was like, okay, great. Um, he goes, you know, we would really like to sit down and talk to you. And I was like, sure. Um, so I went to New York, went to the gallery, didn't tell them it was me just to get a vibe of it and, you know, was just what, you know, how did my body feel being in there? And then I left and came back home to Chicago. And then I called him and, and, you know, he was like, are you with a gallery? And I said, no. And he was like, really? Why? I said, I just haven't found the, you know, right connection, the right partnership and you know so you know i'm just sort of waiting until that sort of comes you know it's like dating it's the same thing um (laughs) (laughs) and what what was the how did the gallery why was the gallery uh and jack that sort of the right partner for you well they asked the right questions i think from the from the beginning you know so they you know they were like you know can we fly you to new york and meet with you and i said sure so then i went there we're very interested in the work, uh, but we're more interested in what do you want for yourself? And that was the moment of truth. Like, oh, shit, I have to tell them what I want. What did you want back then? To be a famous artist. That's what I said. And they said, okay, we'll work with you to make to get you there. That moment was enormous for me because I had to say it, you know, when you when you say your truth, it's somehow it puts it into the universe in a way that, you know, it, it validates it, 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 it just sort of allows the mission to now be sort of developed or pursued. And so, and so that was the beginning of our journey. Before we return to Nick, a word from our sponsor, Fort Street Studio. Fort Street Studios' sumptuous carpets are expertly hand-knotted and executed in nuanced color combinations that are the signature of the studio's painterly designs, which originate from watercolor art. The luxurious pieces are customizable in color, size, and shape, which is why a global list of top architects and interior designers specify them for their clients' interiors. Founded in 1996 by the artists Janice Provisor and Brad Davis, 
Fort Street Studio is world-renowned for its suede-like, hand-knotted wild silk and wool silk blend carpets that combine traditional techniques with inventive textures and modern, sophisticated aesthetics. In 2021, Rizzoli published the studio's first book, titled A Tale of Warp and Weft, that chronicles 25 years of adventures in carpet making. For more information, visit fortstreetstudio.com. And, you know, I think for, for many people, especially in the sort of broader culture at large, the Heard New York uh, performance at Grand Central Terminal was such a major moment. And I remember being in New York at that time and kind of being the total talk of the town. And it was early social media days and it and it really kind of became a thing, really, you know, became the spectacle that everyone was talking about and touched a nerve. And so when it comes to working with these performers, as you mentioned, like working with people locally, which I'm sure in New York is a little bit maybe easier to do. There's just a lot of people and a lot of talent. Um, when you're working with these dancers, you know, how do you, how do you, you, you mentioned really diving deep into a, a locality and the people there, but when you're working with these dancers and practicing, you know, how much of it, how do you work with them? You know, what is that process like? Um, how much of your own artistic intent do you try to imbue into them? Or what is that like? Well, you know, I will bring on a choreography. We're working with musicians, vocalists as well. Um, and then we're in a one to two week residency building a project. I mean, and so that's what we do. So like Heard New York, you know, I wanna, wanted to work with the, the Avenale uh, School. And so we sort of got worked with them. We worked with a number of local musicians. And then we went into this residency and really talked about the sort of intent, um, the sort of purpose of herd and, and, you know, getting us back to this space of imagine, imagination, dreaming. Um, Heard came about because as a kid, what allowed me to dream was when my mother took off my sock, put it on her hand, and all of a sudden it was a puppet. I was like literally transformed. And so that was what that moment was about. How do we get ourselves back to the space of dreaming? Dreaming for me has always been hope. And what do you dream about now? You know, how how can, you know, and again, all of these sort of projects, performance-based projects, it's really all about inclusion. It's has always been about this sort of collective bringing people together that don't aren't familiar that don't know one another uh, and how do we collectively build something that <clears throat> will affect that will change how we see ourselves and so you know I think as an artist I'm always sort of very much thinking about, you know, service. How does my practice serve the larger sort of community? You know, how does it make an impact? How does it sort of inform a way of existing and being? 
and and taking that idea about artists communication to another level fast forwarding to somewhat recently um with your work truth be told that has this very sort of raw immediate vibe to it um can you describe what that first iteration of it was uh and how it was received and how you how it came to be well you know truth be told sort of you know that was that that george floyd period you know that we were you know that was COVID period that was the sort of uh dismantling of all the confederate sort of statues so there was a sort of dismantling of institutions and uh corporations and how were we going to move ourselves forward with equity and and equality and collectively we all knew that there was so much work that needed to be done and then we were also dealing with an election where i'm sorry but race was you know in the center of a very complex and difficult sort of moment. And so I remember when, and so, you know, I was sort of, you know, doing work here at Facility, which is the building that I own, in response to George Floyd and and using the facade of that space and, you know, you know, what am I accountable for in this moment? How can I be proactive? And so I was also in that process of asking, what is the role of the gallery? What stance are they taking? And so I sort of, you know, talked with Jack, you know, about, you know, a number of projects and, and asking him, you know, what, you know, you have a staple of people of color. What does this moment mean for you? What do you have to say about it? And so, you know, working with him to sort of do this public art piece, let me tell you, not having any idea of the magnitude that came out of that project. And with all of these public projects, I have no idea what the end results are going to be, what the outcome is going to be. I'm sort of gambling all in or nothing. Your 2018 show, If a Tree Falls, which, you know, I'm if I'm not mistaken, didn't have sound suits or things like that. And it was a more heavier show. And obviously it came in 2018, pre-pandemic, pre-George Floyd. But it, now, when you look at it, it seems like you you are La Nostradamus of uh, of American politics in a way. It's it's crazy, you know. And that show came about as I was out thrifting, antiquing, and I came across this ceramic container, figurative container. And I, you know, of a, of a black man's face. And I, it was very interesting to me. And so I grabbed it off the shelf and I proceeded to read the description and it says spittoon. And I was like, O-M-G, live it. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Antiquing can be a really damaging experience. <laughs> And that was the catalyst for that show. I then went around the entire country 
collecting the most repressive, the most despairing artifacts that I could find, such as a a black man holding up the seat of a piano stool. Just, you know, it was just... It's the, what do you call it in, in uh, there's like an Italian, Italian eight genre of like furniture and uh, objet of like the sort of black servant kind of like holding a tray of fruit. Right. Well, and that's what I started to think about was just how racism sort of found its way into consumerism and and product. And it was just fascinating for me. So then, you know, I was just searching for all these objects and created this, you know, takeaway newspaper that, you know, that you could take as you were view the show, you would walk away with this newspaper about the object where it was found. Um, in the country and just sort of created this whole sort of narrative around that and worked with a couple of, of, of writers uh, writing about kitchen and the sort of um, black sort of uh, nostalgic sort of objects that provoked this um, messaging. And so it was just interesting to sort of think about that. And again, just sort of allowing uh, these sort of moments that trigger and shift the direction of the work, uh, but feeling that I have something to say. And and now, you know, uh, at the end of 2022, four years later, so much has happened since that show. Um, to to now look back and to see this uh, a kind of an uh, well not a complete arc because you're of course been working for a very long time but like Rodney King George Floyd pandemic and everything in between to today I'm you know how are you feeling about the state of the culture you know now I mean I think with this survey show that just closed here at the um, MCA traveling to the Guggenheim, it allowed me to, to, for me to realize that for almost four decades, I have been trying to bring light to the subject of racism, inequality, injustice. I mean, to think of, for me to, to reflect on that work and to realize that that's what I've been doing is sort of like, Wow. So I understand purpose. But what came out of the George Floyd for me was, I don't, I, you know, I don't know. I had this awakening that, that this systematic racism is designed to keep people of color in this state of trauma. And I was like, Absolutely not. This is not, no, 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 and no. And so it shifted my structure in the studio back to the origin of where the practice started was from this place of naiveness, this moment of talking about Black love, 
family, family structure, and pulling from this other way of operating. And so now the practice is back to that sort of space of discovering who I am because I've been so consumed about working under this one vernacular that I am like, who am I? If there wasn't racism in my existence, who would I be? What would I be making? So that's that's me going forward. Well, speaking of what you're making, <laughs> this might be either the perfect <laughs> the perfect transition or the world's worst transition to uh, your collection of textiles with Noel, <laughs> which is <laughs> how's that for a how's that for a segue? Um, boom, done. Okay, and well, okay. So how did that happen in the middle of all of this? I'm sure you've been working on it for a long time, right? And, and then you're you're kind of doing this, you know, truth be told, and this heavy period and pandemic. I'm sure. And and then someone says, "Hey, how about how about a faux um, how about a faux shearling?" <laughs> and like, how did that happen? Because it's so amazing. How about a, um, a, a, a tapestry? How about some upholstery? Let's talk drapes. Let's talk. Let's talk drapes. <laughs> Let's talk upholstery. You know, speaking of joy, <laughs> uh, you know, it was a an ass that was a, about three years uh, three years in the making. Um, but it was really, you know, again, coming from Cranbrook, I'm surrounded by Saren, I'm surrounded by Knowles, you know, design. I'm just like, you know, that's the landscape of that school. And so that was interesting to me, that sort of connection. But then what was also interesting for me is just the translation of, you know, the artwork into a textile. You know, I come from a textile background. I understand uh, weaving. I understand jacquards. I know how to do that. Uh, I understand prints. I understand repeats. You know, you know that was part of my undergrad sort of upbringing. So it made sense. And I think the most important thing with Noel's textiles, as well as any of the work, any shifts in the work is translation and probably the most important thing is the essence. How do I transfer the essence of my practice into a collection for Noel? And so that's really what I focused on. I mean, the collection's fabulous. And it's how long did you work on it? For about Three years. Oh, gosh. Okay. Wow. You know, um, samples and, you know, uh, that's not working. Let's go back to the drawing board uh, until it all came together. And, you know, again, it has to read Nick Cave for Noel. And that's why you paired each one. Was that idea from you or from Noel that the idea of pairing each design directly to a piece of work. Well, it was, uh, I think it was just, again, us collectively in conversation uh, that, you know, <clears throat> you know, the first phase was me pulling together about 50 images of my work, sending that to them as they started to think about 
uh, surface treatments, uh, you know, what is going to be upholstery, what is going to be drapery, you know, how do we, how do we divide up and create these categories based on the artwork and where they feel that it fits, um, you know, so you've got upholstery, you've got drapery, you've got, um, wall papers, and so, and then, you know, again, just sort of, you know, and I'm thinking in my brain, texture, 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 um, because that's really, at the end of the day, the sort of foundation of my work. It's really about texture and, and pattern and color and exuberance and, yeah. And, well, uh, one question I did forget to ask, uh, which is uh, your partner, Bob, and how he's, you know, a, a part of your life and, and your work there at facility. And um, I'm curious, how did you guys meet? You know, we met, um, I was having a sweater sale and a friend of Bob's brought him to the sweater sale. What year was that? That, oh God, maybe 84, 85 maybe. And so, but we met um, at that time, and I asked him, what did he do? He goes, I'm a designer. And I said, I'm doing my first solo show, and I need a book. Do you want to design the book? So that's how we met, and we worked from that year till today. Day where the first 10 years, friends, no uh, partnership uh, at, that, at that time, but we made a book every year. Oh, that's so sweet. And yeah, we just, you know, were amazing friends. Like he was probably my best friend. Um, and so we, you know, really sort of, had this amazing friendship and and amazing work relationship around projects. And if you, after all this time, if you went back in time and met your younger self in 1991, you know, a year before you made that first sound suit, and what would you, what would your younger self sort of ask you now, and how would you respond? What would be that sort of question and answer sort of echoing through time be like? I think my younger self would say to me, thank you for not losing perspective, not losing hope, uh, and, and staying your authentic self through art, you know, through art. It's interesting, I think about that, and I just was looking at a, some pictures when I was like 19, and I'm thinking like, wow, I still have that drive. I still have the hunger. I am all in as I was all in then. I am completely so all in to creativity and and uh, and fortunate to to be 
is still fully committed to, you know, the practice and, and the mission. And what's next for your studio? You know, it's interesting. There's a, there is a, well, this shift of, I've been able to go back and forth to this retrospective at the MCA and, uh, and I can close that chapter. And so I'm in the midst of, you know, I'm working with a number of fabricators building the materials for the next body of work. Do you find it difficult after you've gone through a big retrospective to kind of be like it, it's 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 going and it's scary and it's I don't know what I'm doing but I have to do it. So and what gives you that kind of um that artistic bravery? I've always been brave. If I'm not scared then um something is it's never been easy. I've always been willing to step up to fear because that's really has always been the sort of driving force that has always prevailed, you know, me to move forward. But I don't know. I'm sort of, I'm watching all this preparation being done around me, but I'm like, oh my God. I've got to step into this at some point. It's all being delivered any day now. <laughs> and Bob's like, what are you going to do? Are you, you know, what are you thinking? I'm like, don't talk to me about it. I can't. I'm not there yet. It's going to happen. I don't know what, but it feels right. But it feels, I don't know what it feels. I'm scared, but I'm willing to go all in. A special thanks to my guests, Nick Cave, and to Bob Faust and Noel Textiles for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. Till next time.